This episode of the QTR Podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out some of my patrons. I'll give you two rules for today's podcast, and we will get well on our way. Nobody I would rather have with me right now than Peter Schiff. Uh, He is the reason I started the podcast, and I'm happy he's here today. We got a lot of shit to talk about. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers. Gold just broke through 1900, and as I was speaking with Lawrence Lepard on the last podcast about gold, I think we both think that this next breakthrough of all-time highs is going to be the real breakout. And so what better way to position yourself than with some actual bullion from JM Bullion? They have been in business for 10 years almost 10 years. They've done over $3 billion in sales. They have a wonderful reputation. They always turn around my orders very quickly. They always have a good inventory for me to choose from. I've been very satisfied with them as a customer of theirs. It is the only place I have ordered any physical bullion from since I started uh, having them as patrons on the podcast. QTR podcast listeners have their own sales rep there, Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. You can shoot her an email or you can use the link in my podcast description. Um, If you don't feel like going through the website, Laura will be more than happy to help you out with any questions that you have, really with anything at all that you need. You want to check inventory and you don't really feel like maybe you're a first-time buyer, you have questions, just shoot Laura an email. She is there. For you, let her know you're a QTR podcast listener, and they will get you squared up. My friends over at JM Bullion, I love you guys. This podcast also brought to you by Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus, who have a product called the Steam Room, which I think is one of the best pieces of software available, especially if you are an active day trader. It tracks illiquid flows coming into the options market, which oftentimes can help tell you which way the market is going to move. That's what these guys are experts in. That's what they do for a living. That's what they've done for a living. They are tape readers. They are market psychologists, and they are sharp. These guys are in and out of options on a daily basis. They understand the options market extremely well, and they're nice people to do business with. So if you want to try out the beautiful piece of software called the Steam Room, you can use the link in my podcast description. Reach out to Sang Lucci or Wall Street Jesus. Tell them you heard about them on the QTR podcast and that you want mm, a 30-day free trial, let's say. And maybe they'll hook you up with that. Just tell them I sent you. I told Lucci, I said, I'll just get people over to you, but you got to do what I tell them you can do. So I'm telling you 30 days free trial. Now Lucci's got to do that for you. No credit card, no bullshit, no nothing. Check out the Steam Room. They're wonderful people too. Also in the wonderful people category, my friends Pete Hedgetus and George Gammon. Pete Hedgetus runs The Trader's Path, which is a fantastic day trading community. If you're looking for daily ideas, a community to bounce ideas off of, daily watch lists, watch lists chart scans, uh, anything that you would need if you're an active trader. If you're sitting at the desk all day, The Trader's Path is a great community to surround yourself with. Pete Hedgetus started it because he got tired of the nonsense and bullshit of other day trading services some less than savory ones, but I know Pete. He's been a wonderful guy to speak to and to do business with. You can follow him on Twitter. His link is also in the podcast description. And my dear friend, George Gammon, who has been a runaway success on YouTube 
and on you know podcasts and everything who incidentally every time I said to Lawrence Lepard you'll probably get invited on to George Gammon next Georgia I tee him up and George knocks him out of the park that's why I say here you go here's a guy maybe you should look at here's uh you know a thousand views for you George Gammon's like oh yeah he rolls into town in his fucking Corvette why don't you hop in my podcast backseat, buddy boy? I got 400,000 YouTube subscribers or whatever he has. Don't worry, George. I'm not salty at all. Good, great, grand, wonderful for George Gammon. <laughs> no, Gammon is my buddy. Rebel Capitalist Pro is an awesome platform. He just had Schiff on a couple days ago as well. That was a great interview. Check it out. Show George Gammon some love. His Rebel Capitalist Pro platform that he started with Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh well worth it. They will also give you a free trial. They do uh, like two or three Q&As a week. I'm always getting notifications on them. So if you want to be engaged with somebody uh, of an Austrian mindset and not just me, I like to put my shit out and then not hear from anybody. But uh, if you want to do Q&A with real market experts, I mean, Lynn Alden is an expert. Chris McIntosh is an expert. And George Gammon is a fucking super sharp dude. Um, He'll be back on soon, but check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. That is also in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my dear friends at Investors Underground and Traders for a Cause. They just looked like they had another successful event that I wasn't invited to speak at. I guess I've worn out my welcome. That's okay, though. It's all right. We've all, you know, it's all love between uh, me and all the guys over at Investors Live, not just um, Nathan Mashad and uh, Zach, but... Uh, all those guys over there. Jay Mintzmeyer, also a uh, patron. He's over there all the time. Eric Wood, just great guys, great group. I hope we get to go to Vegas this year. I miss kind of having a couple drinks with them uh, as we would do on the annual sometimes. Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer. I already said Jay Mintzmeyer, great shipping analyst if you want to check him out. His link's in the podcast description. Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Soul, and some of my newest patrons, Sam Doolittle and Dan Martin. Brittany Guidel, thanks so much, Brittany. I appreciate that. I Jones is in the house checking in. Based on your currency, looks like from England, jolly old England. Thank you, brother. Mr. Q and Gregory Endress still in the house. Mr. Q, thank you very much for your kind donation. Zach Hansen, Tony A, Forrest Hendricks, Chase the Disgruntled, Jimmy John's Driver, and some people that have been with me for a minute, like Evans, my boy Sam Blake is still in the house. What's going on, brother? I hope you're still listening. Rob Mart, or uh, maybe you forgot about your patron and it just goes to some credit card that you don't even worry about. And in that case, you know, I support that too. <laughs> Alex Glazer, what's going on? Jesse Dwayne and uh, Brett and Andrew Mitchell, Shane Yeekley, Thomas Haberl, thank you. And special shout out to whoever that dude was in Old City that I bumped into this week. Good to see you, brother. It was, uh, we were both coming and going, I think, from different bars. Anyways, this podcast has a three-drink minimum, formerly a two-drink minimum, but has been adjusted for inflation. The podcast has been around about three years. That's a, about a 50% inflation rate over three years. You're talking probably 16.5% per annum, which is probably closer to the actual inflation rate than the CPI number. We'll discuss that in moments. Finally, I hold no licenses, no registrations. I am not a financial advisor. And uh, you really shouldn't listen to anything that I have to say. I'm not an expert, but I think Peter Schiff is. And that's why I am super stoked to have him on. Okay, it's been increasingly more difficult to get Peter Schiff on my podcast of late. I think uh, it's been great to watch him do an actual like mainstream media 
tour. I wasn't around in 2007, 2008 for the housing crisis when really, you know, I see all these old videos of Peter on his YouTube channel of him debating all these idiot socialists and people that thought housing was going to be fine. And he was always on Fox <laughs> News and he was always on these major news networks. And then all of a sudden, they, you know, he went away. And I was telling him this week, you know, that he was part of the reason that I started a podcast because I felt like, look, in terms of if you're interested in liberty and you're interested in the Constitution and you're interested in sound money and you're interested in Austrian economics, nobody is going to cut to the chase and tell it to you uh, directly from you know how they feel and stand by what they say more than Peter and I think above all that's what I admire the most about him and and what draws me to him as a commentator is you know he really is unwavering in many of his stances when at many points it's probably convenient to waver you know it's probably a convenient thing to do I mean CNBC is full of people that all they do is change their friggin mind all the time so Peter Schiff is the CEO of Euro Pacific Capital. He's the uh, he's their chief economist. He's just the man in general. How are you today, Mr. Schiff? Oh, I'm 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 doing well. And uh, yeah, but you know, I'm still not really on uh, you know these financial shows. I mean, I did get on to Tucker Carlson not too long ago, so I had a couple of appearances on his show, and so maybe I'll you know return and and, and do more. I recently uh, was interviewed by Ben Shapiro. I don't know if you'd consider him mainstream or not, but sure. he's got a pretty decent audience. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't go on CNBC at all. In fact, you know, funny thing, I noticed that on CNBC, they were selling an NFT to commemorate the 10 year, uh, you know, since uh, Mark Haynes passed away. At least they're giving the proceeds to charity, uh, but they're auctioning off this NFT. Of you know him on television in 2009 calling the bottom of the stock market. I'm not really sure how many times he called the bottom prior to that, but I mean that was certainly the last time. I don't know, maybe it was the only time. I can't recall. But you know, I thought it was funny, so I put together a little YouTube video that I'm going to you know put out today that I just wanted to tweet because I wanted to tweet out um, my two favorite memories of of Mark Haynes and see if they wanted to make an NFT of that. But uh, the the two that I remember the most was when I was on his show, uh, Squawk Box. I was on, and then I came on like, I don't know, like I talked about gold, and it was like $450 an ounce. And I came back on the show like, you know, a month or two later, maybe not even two months, and it was already 50 bucks higher. It was almost $500 an ounce. And I was trying to point out, you know, what that was signifying about, you know, the infl- the economy, inflation, dollar. And Mark was like, who cares about the price of gold? I mean, what, what difference does it make? I don't give a damn. I thought it was interesting that he couldn't care less about gold. And he's, you know, anchoring a financial channel. But gold is completely irrelevant to him. So I thought that was uh, very telling at the time. And then uh, another clip, which I put in this one, is in 2007, when I was trying to explain to Mark Haynes why a financial crisis was coming and the problems, uh, you know, with the housing bubble and subprime, and he kept telling me that, you know, where are you getting all this gloom and doom? This is crazy. Everything is fine. There's nothing wrong. And then he said to me, and this is what I remember, he said, Peter, do you really expect me to believe that we have a bubble in real estate? I mean, after all, we had a bubble in the NASDAQ, and it hadn't even been 10 years. And these things normally just happen once every 100 years. Do you really expect me to believe that we have another bubble so soon after the last one? And I said, yes. 
but he was like it like he it, it, it was incredulous to Mark Haynes that we could have a bubble you know because after all we we just had one and he didn't think we'd have another one so I put a little a video together uh, of that to put out there and we'll see if they, I, I doubt they'll make an NFT of it but I bet they can get more money for that one than the Haynes bottom <laughs> well from what I hear from many people uh, including some people that are at CNBC now uh, despite whatever disagreement you guys may have had, uh, everybody holds Mark Haynes in very high regard. Um, yeah, so uh, Haynes held in high regard, even though obviously you had some uh, some disagreements with him. You know, one of the things I was saying in the introduction was that you're really a person of conviction. I think anybody that's read your books and anybody that listens to your podcast regularly knows that you really, you know, you're a person of unwavering conviction. I mean, you see the world... Uh, through the lens that you see it through and you advocate for you know liberty and sound money and all these things that you think are uh, gonna lead us to the most prosperity and the best quality of life and you don't really change your mind often on those things you make your decisions and you explain them even with unpopular things like the George Floyd verdict you were talking about the one day I mean you made your case you stuck with what you said so to hear Michael Saylor the the Bitcoin advocate come out and say that you're a person who stands for nothing is what he said in in one of his uh, comments about you. Did you hear that? Yeah, well, I read that. I mean, I didn't hear it. He tweeted it. But, you know, and the thing is, a lot of people have been trying to get Michael Saylor to debate me. And everybody that's asked him, he's refused. I mean, I've always said, sure, you know, I'll, I'll debate him. I mean, just get him to agree to do it. Uh, but he won't do it. And so one of the reasons he decided to give for ducking a debate with me is, oh, why debate Peter? He doesn't believe in anything. He doesn't stand for anything. You know, I'm like, what are you talking about? I mean, clearly he knows nothing about me if he doesn't think I I stand for anything or believe in anything. I just don't believe in Bitcoin. uh, And I believe that a lot of the stuff that he's saying is a bunch of nonsense. You know, in fact, there's one interview in particular where he's encouraging people to put everything they have into Bitcoin and then to go into debt to buy Bitcoin, yeah. to mar- mortgage their house to buy Bitcoin. I mean, he's, he's doing interviews telling people, you know, put everything you have and then borrow and put even more. I mean, that is completely reckless and irresponsible to to basically tell people to make an all or nothing bet on on, on Bitcoin. I mean, what if I mean, what if they it crashes and they go bankrupt. I mean, is is he going to take care of all these people that that are in poverty because they followed that ridiculous advice? I mean, even if you think Bitcoin is going to be as great as Sailor thinks it is, you don't bet the house on it. Literally, you know, you gotta you know have a a, a reasonable allocation, right? Um, especially you know if you're an older person. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're a young kid and you know, all right, whatever, you don't have much money and you want to gamble it on Bitcoin. Uh, but to mortgage your house to buy Bitcoin? I mean, this is just completely nuts. But a lot of the things that he says are so out there. You know, it's just so crazy, and it's constant. And, you know, he's everywhere. The guy, I mean, you find some YouTube channel with 100 subscribers to it, and there's Michael Saylor doing a one-hour interview on Bitcoin. I mean, constantly, uh, you know, try, everywhere he can, you know, you know, touting Bitcoin, touting Bitcoin. Uh, continuing to buy it, levered up micro, you know, micro strategy, borrowed all this money uh, to buy a bunch of Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and, but what he said about me, obviously, I mean, it's just another lie. I mean, he lies all the time when he, you know, touts Bitcoin. So 
why not lie about me and claim that I have no uh, principles or I don't stand for anything? In fact, he even said in that tweet that I don't even believe in gold, which, you know, which is ridiculous. I mean, how, how can he say I don't believe in gold? I mean, of course I believe in gold. Now, I think some people uh, jumped on the fact that I mentioned, I think, in a tweet, because people were making fun of me because, you know, stocks were going way up and gold wasn't really doing much. And they're like, oh, Peter, you know, you're missing out on all these gains. And I pointed out, I said, well, I don't really have that much of my net worth in physical gold, you know, which is true. I mean, I tell people to have 5 to 10% in gold, and I, you know, pretty much follow uh, something similar myself. Now, I have a pretty big allocation of gold stocks um, because I really think they're going to go up, but most of my money is in other stocks that aren't gold stocks. I mean, I have a lot of gold stocks. But I have a lot of stocks that are in other sectors. They pay a lot of dividends, and I have a lot of stocks that have done really, really well. So people are seem to be under the impression that I have all my money in gold and that I'm missing out on every bull market. That's not the case. I mean, I have an allocation to gold the way some people might have an allocation to cash. I look at gold as my dry powder, as my safe haven, as my store of value, but I don't look at it as an investment. I don't look at gold as a way to get rich. I look at gold as a way to stay rich or, you know, to keep from becoming poor. Uh, but I see a lot of opportunities out there to make good investments in businesses that I think look good, where they're well run, they've got good balances, good earnings, pay good dividends. And most importantly, they're outside the United States, which is what I want to do. I want to get the hell away from the U.S. dollar. I want to own assets in countries that I think are going to benefit uh, as the dollar declines and as the U.S. Uh, standard of living declines and American purchasing power is transferred abroad, I think as America becomes poorer, uh, the rest of the world is going to become richer, not necessarily equally. I think there are some countries that will benefit more than others, and I want to kind of focus my investments in businesses that will be the beneficiary of that, of that change. So I pointed out on Twitter that, hey, I'm not just sitting here in gold. You know, I, I'm, I'm investing my money. And so people maybe took that to mean, oh, I don't have any confidence in gold because I don't have all my money in gold. I mean, what idiot is going to have all of his money in any one thing? And, you know, gold doesn't pay any interest, doesn't pay any dividends. So I'm not just going to sit on gold when there's a lot of good opportunities out there. But I have some gold because things could crash, and then I want to be able to buy more of those stocks at cheaper prices. But they may not crash in terms of dollars, but they may crash in terms of gold. Yeah, and you have the exposure in the gold miners, you know, some of which pay. Oh yeah, my gold miners have leverage there. Yeah, because when I own, because when you're when you own a gold mining company, and you know, I have uh, we have we manage separately manage accounts at Europe Pacific Asset Management, so we have a lot of accounts where clients own these gold stocks. We have a gold fund, uh, Europe Pacific Gold Fund, that is managed by Adrian Day, um, and people can look at that fund anywhere: Schwab, Fidelity. Or, or you could certainly talk to one of the representatives at my company to help get into my fund or a separately managed account. But I am so bullish on gold that I'm buying all these gold stocks. That's how much faith I have in gold. Because if gold goes down, I will lose more money in these mining stocks than I would lose if I just held physical gold. The mining stocks have a lot more downside, but they also have a hell of a lot more upside. Because when, you know, when you're buying a gold stock, not only do you own a share of the current earnings of a gold company, and you get to you know, get your share of the income and a dividend, but a lot of these big gold mining companies have enormous reserves of gold in the ground. 
But the key is Wall Street doesn't necessarily assign a value to significant portions of that goal. Because let's say you've got gold in the ground and it's going to cost you $2,000 an ounce to mine it. Well, gold's 1900 Well, what is a gold deposit worth where the cost of mining is 2000 an ounce? Well, it's not worth anything because you spend all this money, you spend $2,000 to dig $1,900 worth of gold out of the ground and you lose $100. So it doesn't have any value. But if the price of gold goes to 5000 and let's say the cost of mining goes up also because there's a lot of inflation, but let's say the cost of mining that gold goes to 3000 but the price of gold is at 5000 now you've got $2,000 an ounce of value, whereas the market assigned zero to that. Now all of a sudden there's this huge value. So there's tremendous upside when the price of gold goes up. And so I'm making a big, big bet on higher gold prices by owning these gold stocks. But in the meantime, I get dividends on those gold stocks. I don't get anything on my physical gold, but I get income on my gold stocks and I could use that income to buy more stocks or buy more gold or just, you know, spend it. Yeah, let's uh, shift gears for one second and go back to Bitcoin because I wanted to ask you if, you know, this morning Carl Icahn came out and made some, you know, semi-positive comment about Bitcoin. We hadn't we hadn't bought it yet, but we're considering it. There was a headline a couple hours ago that Apple was looking to hire a former uh, crypto expert for their alternative payments division. Facebook is now uh, partnered with Silvergate Capital, which is a bank that transacts in uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, Ray Dalio has come out and, and commented positively on, on crypto over the last week. Is is there a possibility that Bitcoin threads itself into the financial system so much that it becomes too big to fail? Nah, I mean... Is there a remote possibility? I suppose anything is possible, but it wouldn't. It's not something that I would want to bet on. And first of all, you know, you get guys. Okay, Dalio, did he say something positive about Bitcoin? Well, he said he'd rather buy Bitcoin than a bond. Well, but he doesn't want to buy bonds. He, I mean, he, he thinks bonds are yeah, but investment. I mean, that's still a positive sentiment, right? That's still not it's, it's really. A, it's a. I mean, it's not a negative. I mean, it's not a negative. All right, for Bitcoin. So, all right, if I said I'd rather I'd rather buy Bitcoin than get cancer, right? Is that like a big endorsement of Bitcoin? Because yeah, but I come on, you're Bitcoin you're a financial cancer. professional. You know what he means. You know what he's alluding to. No, no, he no. He'd rather buy he did, Bitcoin than buy. Dalio did not say I prefer Bitcoin to gold because he doesn't. He did not say I prefer Bitcoin to equities because he doesn't. He knows that bonds are going to go down, so he's saying, hey, given the choice. Uh, between, uh, you know, two bad alternatives, I'd take Bitcoin. Well, he I mean, said he owns it, he's, too. He said he, he owns he, it. He, he's taking the lesser. He thinks that uh, bonds are an even worse investment than Bitcoin. That's basically what he's saying. He's not, like, wholeheartedly embracing it. Now, he did say that he owns some, and I don't doubt that he bought some, you know, just for fun. I don't think he has any serious money. You know, the guy's a billionaire, I mean, maybe what if he has 10, 20 grand, even 100 grand worth of Bitcoin? I mean, it's it's nothing. I mean, he could he could take that money to the racetrack and, and bet it on a horse, you know. So I don't think he has real money in it. But, you know, you do have a number of people that come out and mention, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about Bitcoin. I'm looking at Bitcoin. 
I mean, it's a way to get in the news now because the minute anybody claims they're looking at Bitcoin, CNBC is going to roll out the red carpet and like, oh, my God, we got to have this guy on. But, you know, for every high-profile guy that says that they're considering Bitcoin, there's probably hundreds of high-profile people that have considered it and rejected it. It's just that you don't get on the news, right? If, if you're a CEO of a company or you're um, you know, asset manager, hedge fund manager, and you just think Bitcoin is a, is a complete BS, it's going to collapse, it's a pyramid, it's a Ponzi, you looked at it, you don't want anything to do with it, I mean, you don't come out and make those statements and then get in the news. So the only people whose opinions get heard in the media are the, are the people who are in favor of Bitcoin and who are thinking about buying it, even though they're in the minority. It's a tiny minority uh, that is actually doing it. I mean, most people in the institutional sphere, uh, hedge fund managers, but more uh, pension funds, endowments, none, none of these guys are considering for a minute putting any real money or any money into Bitcoin. So it's really out of proportion the way the media wants to blow it up to get people to think that all these big institutions are buying. The whole idea is to sucker other people in, to get these retail guys in who think, oh yeah, this is these big guys are going to send it to the moon, they're going to come in and 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 it, it's all part of the hype. But people have to you know tune all that out. Very smart friend of mine. Uh, who I don't really bat around ideas with too much, but do once in a while when I'm looking for some, you know, sharp advice. Made an interesting suggestion to me last week, and he said that, he said, what if the, what if Bitcoin was created, because we were trying to figure out the origins, and I've, you know, said several times that, you know, this could be used against us after it threads its way into the global financial system, and then maybe it's revealed that, uh, a bad actor is behind it all uh, and has uh, Satoshi's entire wallet after it goes to a $100 trillion market cap or whatever. That could be a huge problem. But he said to me, what if it was a uh, a purposefully created Fed liquidity buffer by our country? What do you think of that idea? No, I, 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 look, I don't doubt that. The, I think the, the original motivation of, uh, you know, Satoshi or whatever his name is, uh, you know, I think it was an interesting idea, uh, an interesting concept in that, hey, you know, you know, why can't Bitcoin be money? I mean, it was it was designed to be. See, that's why it's called a cryptocurrency. I remember back in the day when people were explaining it to me and, you know, why it was so much better than gold was that, well, you can use it to buy a cup of coffee. Right. It's so much easier because you can't take a little chip of gold and buy a cup of coffee, but you can, you know, Go to a you know a coffee shop and, you know, and and pay using Bitcoin just by you know trading some of your you know coin from your wallet to their wallet, and and of course yeah nobody ever bought a cup of coffee with gold. I mean they used copper, right? You'd pay for coffee maybe with pennies, which were made of copper, or maybe a nickel, which was made of nickel, uh, because gold was not ideal for very small transactions. Although today, with the internet, it's very easy for me to have gold stored at a bank or a depository, and then using the blockchain or anything else, uh, transfer a tiny fraction of ownership to the barista in exchange for coffee. So it actually is easy today to use gold to buy coffee if the merchant wants to be paid in, co in gold and the, the customer wants to pay in gold. I mean, it is very easy. You don't need Bitcoin. But it, initially, that was the idea. Uh, and, but, you know, of course, it's been long since abandoned because everybody 
says that, well, Bitcoin is not going to be used as a medium of exchange. It's, it just doesn't work. It's too expensive. It's too slow. It's too cumbersome. But somehow everybody agrees that it's a store of value. Based on what? What value does it have to store? Nothing. I mean, you know, gold is a store of value because gold is a valuable metal. And people could use it in the future. If they don't want to use it today, I could take an ounce of gold and store it. And in 100 years, I could sell it to a jeweler. You know, or I could sell it to a chip manufacturer or uh, a dentist or whoever needs the gold for whatever the applications are, aerospace. Uh, people will always need gold. Uh, nobody needs Bitcoin. I mean, they don't need it today. They're not going to need it in the future. Uh, people, people buy it. Uh, so, you know, I, I understand, you know, academically, you know, that, hey, you know, we all have this fiat currency. It's serving as money. It has no real value. So why can't we just believe in this? It doesn't have any real value either. But at least, you know, the supply is limited. And, and my problem with a lot of it was, well, the supply of Bitcoin is limited, but the supply of alternative cryptocurrencies is unlimited. And I don't see how those currencies would be any different from Bitcoin. And, of course, now this is happening because a lot of the younger people have already moved beyond Bitcoin. Bitcoin is old school. I mean, Bitcoin isn't cool. You got Dogecoin or you got whatever, SafeMoon or that was the Portnoy coin. Or I mean, there's 10,000 cryptocurrencies. Uh, Bitcoin is not the new kid on the block anymore. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's for your grandmother. It's where it's the bankers are into that. I mean, that's not where, you know, they're, they're, the cool money is. So I think, look, the whole thing is blown over. Look at what's happened. Bitcoin went up to 65,000. Michael Saylor, when he, in February is when he did his Bitcoin conference for CEOs. And during that time, that's when the price of Bitcoin really ran up, uh, 50, 60,000. Can you imagine any CEO that was dumb enough to follow Sailor's advice and to put a significant percentage of their company's balance sheet into Bitcoin at 50, 60,000 a coin, and now it's at 39,000, 38,000? You're down 30, 40%. I mean, and Sailor was telling people, hey, we're going to have 2% inflation a year. You can't afford to leave cash on your balance sheet and risk losing 2% a year put your money into Bitcoin, so then they do it, and they lose 30% in a month, <laughs> and that's your hedge? You're buying Bitcoin to hedge you against 2% inflation, something that could collapse by 50% you know, in, in a matter of days? I mean, I saw Bitcoin last, I think it was last week, it was down 20% in a half hour. <laughs> I mean, we, we, where do you get off calling that a safe haven or a store of value? It's complete absurdity. Yeah, Sailor is really in outer space. And if you just you watch him speak about it and you read some of the things that he writes, uh, yeah, I think you and him are definitely on polar opposite ends of the spectrum. I think you're firmly rooted in reality and I think he is uh I think he's out there a little bit, but I think there is still a case that needs to be looked at in the middle between you guys and I only say that because I can't help but notice that every day there is another corporate balance sheet announcement. There's another, you know, bank trading desk announcement that they're looking at it. There's a new futures product around it. There's commentary about, you know, coming ETFs about it, whatever. And I do think, you know, I think there's a point where it threads its way into the system so much now, that you know that it that, that the government is incentivized to protect it. Now, look, Chris, the guys on Wall Street, they just want to make money. They I mean, they do that with everything right? else, I mean, they right? Would, they backstop look, everything else, Peter. Look, they were selling subprime mortgages. You know, they were happy to do this. They were taking all these crazy dot-coms public. 
They didn't give a damn. They just want to make money. And so if they see something hot, they see Bitcoin at fifty, sixty thousand. They see, you know, the Tudor Joneses and you know, and, and Elon Musk and these guys are in Bitcoin. Oh my God, this is a fad. We got to make some money. We can't let our competitors get all the action to themselves. So everybody rushes to come in. Believe me, all this is going to go away once Bitcoin crashes back down. Uh, maybe you know below twenty, below ten thousand, and it's just you know firmly rooted in a new bear market. Uh, all this is going to go away. The interest is going to be lost, and that's when the lawsuits are going to start, and that's going to complicate this because a lot of people are going to get sued. I think, including Michael Saylor, I think you're going to have shareholder lawsuits against Saylor. Uh, I think you're going to have viewer lawsuits against CNBC. I think CNBC is going to have some explaining to do because I, I think they have a very, very uh, a difficult relationship to justify with Grayscale and the Bitcoin Trust, and 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 the 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 amount of money that has been paid to to a CNBC to advertise that product, and the degree to which the network bombards their viewers with nonstop positive uh, coverage of CNBC without any balance whatsoever to get people to buy 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 buy, um, and you know nobody ever points out. The, the bias, you know, when I used to be invited on CNBC back in the day, years ago, oh my God, if I mentioned gold, I mean, it was like, well, Peter, you don't, you're, you're just trying to sell gold. You know, you're, you're gold sale. You have shift gold. I mean, you're not really, you don't really like gold, do you? I mean, you're just coming on CNBC trying to get people to buy gold, right? They would accuse me of this all the time. Yet I've never heard anybody accuse any Bitcoin promoter, despite the fact that their entire livelihood is based on Bitcoin. Right. They, they run right. a Bitcoin fund, a Bitcoin company. I mean, Michael Saylor, he is levered up. He borrowed to the hilt. Company went into debt to buy Bitcoin. He lives or dies by Bitcoin. If he doesn't get the price of Bitcoin to go up, if the price of Bitcoin crashes, his company's going bankrupt. So what kind of vested interest in that? Right. So yes, every time the price of Bitcoin goes down, he's going to go on every television show he can and try to lie and say whatever he can to pump the price up. Yet nobody calls him out on it. Oh, he can't. I mean, they worship the guy over there. So all of this, it, to me, is going to be one big legal mess in addition to the losses. I mean, I know this is America, and whenever you lose money, you blame somebody else. And, you know, I'm not saying that the people who were greedy enough and dumb enough to buy these tokens aren't responsible for their own losses, because I think they are. You know, I mean, it, it's a caveat emptor. Uh, but I think you can also argue uh, that there was some fraud involved in the marketing. And some people, you know, could argue that, hey, and if it wasn't for this, I, I wouldn't have bought it. And, you know, this is a very litigious society. And so, you know, it, it, this thing is just beginning. Yeah, I watched the 2019 debate between you and Barry Silbert, I think the uh, Grayscale guy, uh, at the SALT conference. Yeah, that was at the SALT conference. Yeah. And, and now, was... of course, uh, uh, you know, Scaramucci, he, he's got a hedge fund now, too. So he's all in on Bitcoin and he's drank the Kool-Aid. I mean, back then, you know, he wasn't, you know, a real believer in Bitcoin. Uh, yeah. But somehow, you know, near the top, he, you know, he, he, just, he said he did a deep dive and all of a sudden he's got a crypto fund. Well, I think if anybody watches that debate and doesn't come away with who the huckster is out of the two of you on stage, I think they need a lobotomy. I mean, I think, you know, I, the ultimate hubris in that debate was after you took the time to try to explain to him, which I don't even know if he grasped 
the concept, you know, the fact that gold's commodity use is what uh, gives it its value and what makes it appealing, among other uh, properties, but that that its commodity use is really what what makes it appealing as uh, as you know the ultimate hedge as money for thousands of years. And he fired back this comment to you like, "Well, what are they going to use it for? Dentistry?" And it's just like <laughs> you, you know, he just shows his ignorance right there. First off, yes, it is used in dentistry. But, you know, if he opened his eyes, he would understand. And I think you even pointed out to him, you know, people hoard gold in places like India. Central banks are hoarding gold. There's an entire jewelry industry based around. People don't understand that. They think because, you know, jewelry is a luxury that that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't need to happen. And that industry is just kind of like. I mean, people have been adorning themselves with jewelry since, you know, humans existed. Right. You find these old caves. I mean, I mean. I mean, women wear, men wear jewelry, women wear jewelry. This is ridiculous. But, you know, some of the stupidest things that I hear Bitcoin people say, and there's a lot of smart people in Bitcoin. I mean, most of the people in Bitcoin are pretty smart. They're not dumb, right? So they're not dumb people, but they believe and say dumb things. And some of the dumbest things that I hear Bitcoin people say are the things they say about gold. Because basically, in order to defend the fact that Bitcoin has no real value, Right. They say, well, the same thing is true with gold. Gold's got no value either. You can't do anything with gold. I'm like, what are you talking about? How could you say that you can't do anything with gold? You could do more with gold than any other metal on the planet. It's the most useful metal. It's the most valuable. It's scarce. I mean, it, it's all these metallic properties that made gold so special, which is why it was so successful as money. Now, it has all these other characteristics that other commodities don't have so it was the ideal money but bitcoin has no uh, characteristics of any commodity you can't do anything with bitcoin and 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 you know for people to think well you know people are always going to want bitcoin i mean that's why the bitcoin guys are so worried about something like a dogecoin because all of a sudden dogecoin is there and people are buying dogecoin instead of bitcoin and so these guys have to say oh dogecoin's a scam it's a ponzi it's a pyramid it's a fraud it's a joke and my point is, yeah, just like Bitcoin. What is the difference? There is no difference. It's just another cryptocurrency. There's 10,000 of them. Whatever is the flavor of the day or the flavor of the month, there are, there are so many different cryptocurrencies that you could buy instead of Bitcoin. There's fundamentally no difference between any of them. There is a big difference between gold and copper, between gold and nickel, or even a bigger difference between gold and lumber or gold and wheat or gold and oil. I mean, if you need gold, you can't just substitute wheat and say, well, I, I need gold for this, but I'm just going to use wheat. No, no, it doesn't work. <laughs> but, you know, hey, if you want to gamble in a cryptocurrency, you could just as easily buy Dogecoin as, as Bitcoin. There's no difference. Who cares? The only thing you do with the <laughs> cryptocurrency is, is trade it or collect it. But you actually do things with gold. You actually do things with wheat. And you do different things with those different commodities. I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, you know, I came up with the term on my own. I'm, I'm not gun locking anybody, but uh, I came up on a, <laughs> with a term on my own that that Bitcoin is essentially what somebody described to me one day. You know, well, what is it? Okay, well, it's you know, it's a it's a spot on a digital ledger. I said, all right, you know, it's like putting your name. And this is what I came up with. This is what it feels like. It's like putting your name on a guest list for a club that you're never going to get into and you're never going to experience because it's not there. You know, it's like calling up, going through the trouble, putting your name on the guest list. And here I am. I'm third on the list. I'm going to be the third one to get in the club. I got VIP seating. 
Uh, you know, I'm going to ball out tonight. But there's no club. Yeah, the there's no DJ. There's, there's no, no door. Anyway. There's you're no right, velvet rope. Right. So it's like you're putting your name on, on the guest list for the most exclusive club in the world that doesn't exist. Yeah, That's or to me, like. it re- or I, I always think of uh, George Costanza taking his, uh, his in-laws, potential in-laws, to his house in the Hamptons. Oh, yeah. You know. It's, you know, it's just you're just never going to get there. There's just no house, but they can, you know, they have this long journey. Uh, but yeah, the gunlock thing that you know, obviously, I don't know if you're thinking about the same reference, but Kingpin, right? With uh, Munson, did you see the movie Kingpin? Kingpin, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where because the guy gets Munson. You know, that's where he has, oh, he has everything yeah. going for him, and then he blows it, right? So yeah, so when you get gunlock, that's when somebody just completely takes. Have you uh, ever thought? Have you ever thought that, that Gunlock? Have you ever thought that it's just a coincidence that Gunlock came up with the same two analogies that you used? Possibly. I mean, oh, it's, it's more it, than two, but is, no, no, no. Is it possible? There is no way. There are a lot of people that say. People oh, say, Peter, yes, you're an, you're an egomaniac, with, Peter. You know, Not everybody's out there copying you. That's what people say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He just yeah six six seven castaways shipwrecked on an island. One gets assigned the job of forging for food one has to make the fire the guy's using all my lines exactly I mean, the only difference that he had in the in the in this, this castaways analogy is i had six people in mind and he had seven so he had an extra person and um he didn't mention that that five of them were asian and one was american you know because when i did the analogy i also wanted to you know show the relationship between america and china so he didn't use it for that purpose. He used it just to show that production is important, not consumption. But that's what I was showing in this in the fact that, you know, China's doing all the production and we're doing the consumption. And we think that, you know, we're, we're, we're you know, we're in the driver's seat, that our role is more important because we're, we're spending the money. But my point was, no, spending is nothing. It's consuming. It's production. That's key. And so but he used that same exact analogy. But then he, did, he used the other one, one of the ones that he used where I have an analogy where I say you run into a friend that you haven't seen, a old college friend, you say, hey, how you doing? And then he says, so he does the exact same thing. He's on CBC, he goes, hey, I run into an old college friend. And I say, hey, how you doing? I mean, wait, where, where did he, I mean, even if he had the same analogy, <laughs> he's not going to open up with, hey, how you doing? I mean, he's just taking word for word what I said. But the thing that bothers me about it, I don't mind that Jeff Gudlock is using my analogies to explain a point that I know he believes in anyway. I mean, I'm not saying that, hey, Jeff Gunlop learned everything he knows from me. I'm not making that point. I think that Jeff Gunlock and I arrived at a lot of the same conclusions because we think alike in in, in many respects. And, but I think that one of the talents that I might have better than Gunlock is I, I have a knack for explaining things and I can put things in a way that lets the common guy uh, grasp a concept. And I think that's great when Gunlock is like, yeah, Peter has a great way of explaining this, so I'm going to use that analogy, you know, when I'm talking to somebody. And I, I'm great, you know, I'm grateful that, that, I'm, that, I'm, that he's able to do that, but what pisses me off is what he should do when he does it is say, you know, that reminds me of a Peter Schiff analogy. Peter Schiff had a right. really great way of explaining it. And that's respectful to me for coming up with it, but also what I what I'd like to see is I like him to throw in the face. Just hey, do me a little bit of a favor here because you know I'm helping you. I'm, I'm you know you're using my analogies, and I know he listens to my podcast probably regularly. I don't know, 
Um, but hey, you know, these assholes on CNBC and these other people that, that, that kiss your butt, right? And, and, you know, whatever to get you on, you know, but, you know, hey, just let them know that you listen to Peter Schiff and that'll really piss them off. And they're not going to, like, not have Jeff Gunlock on because he admits that he listens to Peter Schiff. You know, it's like they're not even allowed to speak my name on CNBC. It's kind of like, you know, that you know, there's like seven words that you can't say in broadcasting. So in, on CNBC, there's eight because one of them is my name. Is that a real thing? I but, mean, is, uh, <laughs> are, are you actually banned permanently from CNBC? Is that a real thing? Is there like a real kibosh on using? Yeah, your of name? course. Well, I'm banned from I'm banned from Bloomberg. Bloomberg banned me first. Bloomberg like officially, the like they told you you're banned, or you, they just haven't invited. No, you no, back no. Back. They will never tell you. Look, when Bloomberg, I used to do Bloomberg TV once a week. I was on Bloomberg more than anything, right? Because Bloomberg, you know, they weren't even as big as like CNBC or Fox or CNN. Not as many people watch Bloomberg, right? So they, they, they needed guests. So they used to have me on all the time. And I used to come on Bloomberg and they, I even guest hosted sometime. They'd have me on for a whole hour, right? So I did Bloomberg regularly, probably 2005, six, seven, eight, you know, but after the financial crisis around 2009, they stopped inviting me on. And so it's been over 10 years. And, but during the first few years of the, the ban, right. They, but they never would tell me I was banned. So what would happen was somebody would leave CNBC where I was still going on, or they would leave Fox, right. And they would get a job at, um, at, at Bloomberg. And one of the first things they would do is call me up to book me. Cause they're like, Oh, Peter's a great guest. We want to have him on our show. Right. Everybody always liked having me on. I used to get so many compliments The people, the producers would say, yeah, you know, we get so many emails when you're on, have him back when he's going to come on. I mean, I used to run into people when I used to be a regular on like CBC, people used to tell me, you know, they run, they recognized me in the city that the only time they even turned the volume up was when they saw me. Because if I wasn't on, they couldn't care less what they had to say. They just had this, they had it on for the ticker on the bottom. Right. But when they saw, they saw me, they would turn up the volume because I, I, you know, they wanted to hear me. So these producers or bookers would come to, to uh, Bloomberg and then they would call me up to book me. And I'd say, okay, I'll, you know, I'll come on. And then sometime between the time they booked me and the time I was supposed to appear, I would get an email uh, oh, okay, something came up and it's canceled, right? Ah, then that guy would never book me again. Hair, then, yeah. then somebody else. I was probably booked and canceled at least a half a dozen times over a couple of years. But they, they, every time, that, oh, yeah, this came up, that came up, because the people that booked me, they didn't get the memo that I was banned, right? And, and so then they would find out, oh, Peter Schiff, oh, he can't be on. And, but they'll, they'll never tell you that you're, you're banned, right? They just ban you internally and they'll make up excuses, you know, oh, we got to cancel this guy. Just tell him something came up, something came up. Uh, so Bloomberg was the very first one. But CNBC, uh, nobody has tried to book me from CNBC, um, so I couldn't even test it. But to be honest with you, I mean, I'm just so pissed at them, particularly for Bitcoin. It just really, really bothers me that they're shilling like this and they've just sold their souls uh, to their advertisers and the way they are just promoting this thing. Um, I, I, I just think it's shameless. I mean, I would, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like, I, I, I don't want to have any part of it, but I mean, I still watch it and there's some good people there. I mean, I'm not saying everybody there is bad. I mean, I have some friends that, that are there and, but, but overall, I really don't like what they're doing. Um, who do you think likes and, you the least? Who do you think likes you the least on CNBC? 
Oh, I don't know. Uh, well, the only two that have banned me on Twitter, right, that have blocked me are Steve Leisman. So he obviously doesn't like me. Oh, there's a big fucking surprise. Um, <laughs> yeah, Steve Leisman. And um, what's-his-name also banned me. Um, um, what's the guy? Oh, Jim Cramer banned me. Oh, did he? Yeah. Now, I ran into Kramer at, you know, here in Puerto Rico one time. He was vacationing with his wife and had a pleasant conversation with him. But I, I'm not sure why he banned me. But, you know, you know, Kramer, Kramer, talk about Gunlock. Kramer got his his whole, uh, there's a bull market somewhere. He got it from me. Because what happened was, before he had, there's a bull market somewhere, I was a guest on some show that he had years and years ago. And th he had never said there's always a bull market somewhere. And Euro Pacific Capital, my old website, it was Euro Pacific Capital because there's a bull market somewhere, right? That was my tagline on Euro Pacific Capital, on my website and all my promotional material. And so he had me on, right? And he had, you know, he was on my website and he saw that. And it wasn't that much later that he came up with the line himself. So I'm pretty sure that he took that line from me because I, I used it before he did it. It was like I had a trademark symbol next to it, like TM on my, you know, because there's a bull market somewhere. <laughs> and then he's like, all of a sudden he, he put it on. I don't know. I mean, it could be a coincidence, but I always thought that he probably, he probably got that from me. But so, but he banned me, but I don't know. I mean, I make fun. I mean, some of the guys now have gotten um, really into Bitcoin, like, like Joe Kernan now is he's got the laser eyes and, Thing is, though, I like Joe. I mean, Joe Kernan. I mean, I'm not friendly with a guy, but I mean, I think that we 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 could actually be friends. We have so much in common. I mean, we. I mean, my personality is very similar. He was a stockbroker. He started out as a stockbroker. He makes all the same stupid movie references. Every time he makes a movie reference, I know exactly what movie it is. I say the same stuff myself. He loves German shepherds. I mean, I've had German shepherds. You know, um, he has a Porsche. I drive a Porsche. You know, or at least the, my car in Puerto Rico. You know, plays golf. I mean, it, we, it seems like he 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 he's a guy that I I enjoy palling around with. We have just a lot in common. But somehow he got into crypto. Uh, some people like you know you know uh, uh, somehow. Kernan just him. comes off. He, <laughs> he comes off like one of these old school huh? guys. You know, he comes off like one of these old school guys. I could see like politically, you guys are probably aligned on some things too. But when it comes down to getting, yeah, into it, I mean, he's yeah, when he's a when it comes down know, to getting he's a Republican into the, or tries to be free market. But but I don't know. I mean, I'm not really sure where, but the how they got so bad. But the problem I have with it is guest after guest after guest complete BS. I mean, certainly crypto, but even outside of crypto, I mean, it's all pie in the sky, Pollyanna, you know, the economy is great. The fed is great. The market is great. I mean, I mean, it, it, there are, there are so many problems on the horizon. I mean, way worse than the stuff that they were oblivious to leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. Leesman. But I mean, every once in a while they'll have somebody on, you know, a decent guy who, you know, talks about, you know, some potential problems, but nothing to the degree that, you know, like I used to, like when I was going on, I mean, when I was going on in 2000 and, 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 and five and six and seven, I didn't pull any punches. I mean, I told it like it is. That's why I was so popular. That's why so many people liked listening to me. I was a breath of fresh air and I was the only guy that was calling out the problems at the fed and the problems in the housing bubble and what was going to happen with the banks and, you know, and, and, and all that. 
But what CNBC is trying to gloss over now, the problems now are so much bigger, yet they don't want their audience to learn about it. They don't want people to know the gravity of this situation and just how much money they're actually going to lose if they continue to follow this, uh, this advice that is, that, that, that is, you know, everybody is getting on that network, uh, not only about just being in cryptos, uh, but about being in the U S market, about being in, uh, the bond market. And I'm not again, talking about a crash in terms of dollars. I mean, that may not happen. I mean, it probably won't happen. I'm talking about a crash in terms of real money, a crash in terms of gold. I mean, that's how these bubbles are going to deflate. They're all going to deflate in terms of gold. All these assets are going to get killed. And it's not just gold. I mean, they're going to get killed, I think, in terms of all commodities and consumer good prices. And you're going to see the decline in terms of other currencies like the euro or the yen or all these other currencies. Uh, U.S. stocks are going to lose a tremendous amount of value. And, you know, uh, Americans who are, you know, following this type of, you know, cookie cutter, conventional, uh, U.S. centric investment strategy are going to get killed. Yeah, Leesman was actually making excuses last week. I think it was last Wednesday when they released the Fed minutes. And there was, God forbid, there was one line in the minutes that said something like, you know, we're, we're talking about talking about talking about tapering. And Leesman came on like he was in the spin room after a presidential debate. And, you know, instead of just reporting, here's what they said and here's what that means – went on this like little diatribe about like, well, just because just, just they're saying it's tapering doesn't mean, you know, it's, got to, it's, it's a long way off, uh, you know, uh, you know, like making excuses for them for, you know, first off, obviously everybody knows tapering is the right thing to do at this point. It has to get done. Whether or not it can get done is, is a whole other discussion. But then to come on and, and you know, feel like you got to put a spin on like, oh, the, the FOMC didn't get it right. They didn't they didn't say what they wanted to say. So here's Steve Leesman to deliver the actual truth to you. Like, give me a break. Give me a break. No wonder well, they don't want to call out the obvious. I mean, the only reason they're, they, 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 don't, they can't talk about talk about thinking about whatever it is is because they can't do it. Yes, they should taper. They can't taper. But the mistake, they never should have embarked on this policy in the first place. The minute they did it, that, that you know, they were done. That's why I said this from the beginning when they did QE1 that this was a mistake and they're never going to be able to unwind the policy, that it was a monetary roach motel. That's why when Ben Bernanke told Congress in 2009 that the Fed wasn't monetizing the debt, I said he was lying. Of course they're monetizing the debt. Ben Bernanke pretended that QE1 was temporary and that all the bonds that the Fed bought would go back to the market when the Fed sold them. The Fed never sold anything. It's impossible. You can't uh, taper. I mean, I thought for a while that they weren't going to be able to do it, uh, you know, the, the, the first time, that when the, when the balance sheet was $4.5 trillion and they were talking about tapering and talking about normalizing rates, I didn't think they were going to do it back then. I think the only reason they were able to try was because Trump won. I think had Trump not won, the Fed never would have raised interest rates for the second time. The highest rate you would have got was 25 basis points. Uh, but because Trump won, uh, we were able to get another bubble in equities. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had the tax cuts and we had a bigger bubble in the economy. And under that backdrop, the Fed was able to nudge rates back up to two and a half and, and, and bring the balance sheet below four trillion before the wheels fell off the bus in the fourth quarter of 2008 because the market buckled beneath the weight of a 2% rate. 
And, and, and so then everything crashed and then we got COVID and then they go back to zero. But at this point, the national debt is so large, the leverage is so massive, there's no way they can move off of zero. Even if they wanted to, they couldn't. And there's no way that they can withdraw any of the monetary heroin because we have such a huge drug habit that even a small reduction in the amount of heroin is going to result in massive uh, withdrawal. So that's why the Fed is saying that inflation is transitory, because what else are they going to say? It's permanent and we can't do anything about it? Of course they can't say the truth, right? Jack Nicholson, right? You can't handle the truth. Well, that's why they're not telling the truth. That's the same thing. That's why Ben Bernanke said subprime was contained, because he didn't want to tell the truth. He knew it wasn't contained. He even said that in an interview on The Motley Fool when they played those tapes to him a few years later, and they said, how does it feel to be so wrong? He said, I wasn't being wrong. I just couldn't, I wasn't being honest back then. He said, I was a member of the administration, so I was just putting out spin, right? Just I mean, talking that's what they're doing shit. now. Yep, just talking out of my ass. That's, that's all okay. But why does the media take it seriously? Because why they're, can't they're cowards. Say, because they're how is lying? But the thing is, why doesn't, why does, how is anybody dumb enough why can't you understand how is the Fed going to raise interest rates when there is so much debt? They can't. How is the federal government, right? How is the federal government going to pay the interest on the national debt if the Fed raises rates? It's impossible. How are corporations, how are homeowners going to make their, their, their mortgage payments, especially if they have an adjustable rate mortgage? Look, the whole country, thanks to the Fed, is so levered up on debt that the only thing between you know, the, the creditor in default is the 0% rate. And in fact, but the, the debts are so enormous now, the only, the only buyer is the Fed. I mean, how can the Fed taper? Ben Bernanke is out there, not Ben Bernanke, Powell is out there beating the drum. He wants more fiscal stimulus. He wants the government to spend money it doesn't have. Well, how is the Fed going to taper when it's financing all the stimulus spending? You can't have all these infrastructure programs or stimulus unless the Fed is paying for it. But it's not the Fed that pays for it. It's everybody who owns dollars that pays for it because the Fed just prints dollars out of thin air and it destroys the value of everybody else's dollars. I mean, how people can't see that we are at the beginning of the biggest inflationary episode in U.S. history. I mean, it's going to make the 1970s right, look like a Sunday school picnic uh, to the degree that we're going to have much worse inflation because the problem is, we all know how we put an end to the inflation of the 1970s. We had Paul Volcker with 20% interest rates, and we had Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, to you know, cut marginal taxes and you know, uh, and 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 stop uh, you know government spending or bigger increases in government spending. Uh, Ronald Reagan got elected saying government's not the solution; government's the problem. Well, today, you know, it's government is the solution; capitalism is the problem. But the bigger problem is, how are you going to raise interest rates to stop inflation? You can't. <laughs> it's impossible without causing a much worse financial crisis than 2008 uh, and forcing the U.S. government to default on its obligations. So it's not going to happen. There is no way to turn the monetary spigots off like in 1980. So inflation is going to run out of control. And, and we're going to get a dollar crisis. That's where this thing is going. I mean, look what just happened. To the, to the dollar against the Chinese yuan last night, uh, we, we dropped below uh, 6.4. This is almost a three-year low. But people don't you know, realize this, but the last time the dollar was below 6 
Chinese yuan was 1994. Right. Ever since then, you know, there was a big yuan devaluation in, in that year. But if the yuan goes below six, which I think it could do, it could even do it this year. But if not this year, it'll do it next year. Then the dollar is going to free fall. I think the dollar can get cut in half. I think it can go from six to three. Right. And of course, if that happens, even if the you even if the dollar goes from six to four, right, the Chinese GDP is going to be bigger than U.S. GDP. And, and that could happen this year, next year. I mean, can you imagine the, the, the earthquake that's going to send through the financial world when all of a sudden the GDP in China exceeds the GDP in the United States? And, you know, we're talking about, oh, we have all this strong economic growth. That's all BS. We don't have any economic growth. What are we doing in this country? We're not growing the economy. We're printing money. And we're taking all that money that we're printing, and we're buying all the stuff that the Chinese are making and other people are making. And that's why the trade deficits have run through the roof. This is a disaster of an economy. Right? You have unemployed people spending stimulus money. It, 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 and, we, and we all are congratulating ourselves. I hear one idiot after another coming on CNBC yep, yep. talking about how great this economy is, yep. how strong this recovery is. I mean, these guys don't know anything about economics. If we had a strong economy, we wouldn't have these exploding trade deficits. Correct. Where's all the stuff this strong economy is producing? How do we have so many people unemployed, so many people that are not even in a labor force? How can we possibly have a strong economy? Correct. We have the biggest budget deficits in history. The deficits are bigger now than they were during you know, the lockdown. I mean, if this economy is so strong, why is the government broke? You know, why isn't the government collecting taxes from this strong economy? Why is, are they having to provide such a massive subsidy? It's like, you know, you, 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 you go to visit somebody in the hospital, you know, and you go there and, and, the, and the doctor, oh, the guy is doing great. He's the healthiest I've ever seen. You go in there and he's on like a million tubes, right? He's all on life support. He's breathing through a machine. He's eating through some kind of straw. And, and you're saying, oh, he's in great health? Yeah. You know, I mean, he's being kept alive. Look at him, alive and kicking. Artificial support. <laughs> well, listen, it's not you just know, that. The economy like... is a disaster, and we are around the corner. And if you go back and you look at, like, all the times I was on CNBC, 2005, 6, 7, warning about the financial crisis, warning about the housing bubble, uh, to people laughing at me, making fun of me, you know, this crisis actually is more obvious than that one. And it's much worse. Right? It's a much bigger catastrophic event that's coming than the one that they were oblivious to oh, back then. It's Peter. just that back then they, they at least let me come on television and, and warn about it. Now they don't want the warnings to be heard. Well, you know what? It's going to be tough shit because people are going to figure it out. And you know what? They can, they can hem and haw and crow and talk about how everything's fine as much as they want. You know, th people are starting to understand that inflation is happening, okay? When you look at your bills, and we've talked about this a million times, when you look at your cost of living, your bills, your health insurance, your groceries, and you factor in, you know, how the size of products change, you know, inflation probably is probably a hell of a lot closer to 10% than it is to 2%. But in addition to that, if you, if you can't even open your eyes enough to just look at, you know, how many ounces of cereal you're getting in a box to you know versus what you're paying now versus how much you were getting 
you know, a year ago and what you were paying. If you can't open your eyes and do those little experiments, and the, and the people that do just simple things like the food shopping notice it. Well, I'm getting mm-hmm. I'm getting a little bit less for my three ninety nine, you know, or the price went up and the and the packaging has stayed the same. But if you don't get that, Peter, people are going to get it elsewhere. You know why? Because well, you, they still you can't, don't even know what inflation wait, is. They, you, they won't accept. You they won't accept the definition of you inflation. You can't buy anything as an in the country the anymore. Money supply. You can't. They're, they're, hold they're on, hold on. Focusing on prices. You can't buy anything anymore, Peter. I went to go buy a couch the other day. I went to buy a couch. You know what? You know how long it takes to get a couch? Oh, I know. Look, two I'm waiting two for months. Stuff, you know, I said, "Where are they shipping it from?" Korea. She said, "No, they're making them in North Carolina." You, you, I mean, we're literally running out of things. There's literally not well, enough again, supply because you have all this hot money that, out there. Well, it's not that there's. I mean, there's always a shortage of stuff until you produce it, right? I mean, that's the key. You can't consume what hasn't been produced. Now, when the Federal Reserve prints money, they're not adding any goods or services to the economy. They're just printing money. Well, if you print money, but nobody has actually made something, well, there's nothing to buy. So it looks like there's a shortage. You know, I I, I mentioned on my podcast, what if the U.S. government gave everybody a million dollars in stimulus money, right? Well, a lot of people then would want to buy a new exotic sports car. Oh, I've got a million dollars. I want to buy a new Ferrari, right? Well, then all of a sudden, wait a minute, there's a shortage of Ferraris. Well, yeah, because you can't produce, you can't mass produce all those Ferraris. I mean, one of the reasons they're so expensive is it takes a long time to make one. And you can't make that many. You make them by hand and you do all this stuff and it's all the materials and all the labor. You know, you just can't print money and now everybody gets a Ferrari. So what has to happen? Prices of the Ferraris now have to go way up so that the same number of people can afford them as, you know, as before. Because they, they can't just produce more. So they're always going to say there's a shortage of supply. No, it's not about a shortage of supply. The problem is all these people that are not helping to produce any goods and services have all kinds of money now from the government to buy the goods and services they didn't help create or help uh, you know, supply. So now they want to go and buy stuff. And they're on equal footing with people who did contribute, who did work. And all that's going to happen is prices are going to go up. And that's why I keep describing inflation as a tax, because that's really what it is. Because the government creates inflation just the way the government levies taxes. When the government wants to spend money, it has two ways of getting it. It can collect it, right, legitimately through raising taxes or through actually borrowing money from citizens who loan the money to the government. But, of course, then they have to pay it back, which means that they're going to have to raise taxes in the future. So they can take our money, they can borrow money from us, or they can raise our taxes. But if they don't want to do that, they can just print money because they own the presses, right? So they can just print money and spend that. But that doesn't mean we get all the government for free. That just means we pay for it in a different way. So instead of having less money to buy stuff, we have the same amount of money, but we buy less stuff because the price of everything goes up. So the net effect is the same. I have I can buy less stuff because the government took my money or they took my purchasing power. But that is what's going on. And for people who don't recognize this, that they, they look around and, and they think, well, inflation is transitory. Why the hell would it be transitory? Are these massive budget deficits transitory? No. Is all this money printing transitory? No. And, you know, even if it was temporary, is it, let's say that all of a sudden – the cost of living just went up 20 or 30 percent, and then and then it's, it it went sideways for a few years. Is that okay? 
Does that mean we don't have to worry about it because we have this huge increase in our cost of living and then it just, you know, kind of goes up 2% a year from there? Like, that's a huge loss of purchasing power. Every year it's a massive tax increase. But the reality is it's, this is not going to stop. This is going to be like, you know, this snowball rolling down a hill because what's going to be happening soon as people start to see these price increases, people are going to start hoarding goods right. and buying stuff that they don't even need, right. but that they know they're going to need in the future. And, you know, so let's say, you know, that the price of toiletries or cleansers or food products, let's say something that's cost you, you know, $5 today, you think in a year is going to cost you $6 or $7, right? Why put your $5 in the bank? Just buy extra. And it's not going to go bad. So just buy stuff now. So people are going to start going to the store and buying lots of stuff before they need it. Same thing with businesses. Businesses that need inventory are going to say, you know, I'm going to buy the materials that I need now. I'm not going to wait six months or a year when it's more expensive. So people are going to really start loading up on stuff. And so the velocity of money is really going to start picking up because people want to get rid of their money as quickly as they have it so they can turn it into something real. And then the other reason I think that people are going to start hoarding stuff is because they're going to be worried that not only is the stuff that they want going to be more expensive in the future, it might not even be there. There may be shortages. I mean, what was it? Uh, Joe Biden just last week or two weeks ago was begging Americans not to hoard gas, right? Hey, don't, don't buy gas. Well, why, why not? I mean, if, if you think there's going to be a shortage, I mean, on the one hand, they told the gas stations not to gouge the customer by raising the price of gas. I love that, right? Like, well, the like, only way to stop to people from hoarding the... is to let the price go right, up. I know. If the price is artificially low, you're going to hoard as much as you can. Well, they know nothing about nothing about economics, nothing, nothing about how a market works when they say something like that. They were doing that during COVID, too. You know, it's like, stop, stop raising the price of hand sanitizer. It's like, well, fucking demand has gone up. Like, come on. <laughs> I know, and if you don't raise the price, what the first person that gets there is going to buy all the hand sanitizer. It's all going to be gone. Right. And then he'll be selling it. Then he'll be selling it, you know, in around the corner in an alley somewhere. <laughs> right. My last question, Peter, is. But, no, but, but inflation, it, look, not only is inflation not transitory, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Right. The, the government's only solution will be to change the CPI again. to yep. Try to you know make it so it's not as bad. But and you know they're going to start doing more and more substitution, right? And they'll start taking out you know the goods that we want, and they'll stick in you know I mean the you know they say well you know if the price of uh, steak goes up, well we'll have people buy chicken, and so therefore you know prices didn't go up. Well, I mean at some point you know we're eating dog food and we're paying for dog food what we used to pay for steak. But according to the government, there's no inflation because, hey, we're still eating. Yeah, we're eating dog food, but, hey, what's the difference? Dog food, steak, filet mignon, same thing, right? It's food. <laughs> well, I guess my last question is, you know, politically, when you look at – I can't help but notice Yellen has transitioned into this Treasury Secretary role and has just – you know – I think it's just uh, we're getting a real look into how she was thinking while she was Fed chair, obviously, too. But there doesn't seem to be any type of borders, boundaries, critical thinking, or any type of moderation when it comes to this administration's plans 
to spend and uh, and to print. And, you know, again, I think it tells us everything we need to know about Yellen. The fact, I th- shame on her for being part and parcel to that as a former Fed chair. I think it's frightening that she's now the Treasury Secretary as well. Well, I mean, politically, she was incompetent. Yeah, she was incompetent as a Fed chair. She was incompetent up at the Federal Reserve Bank of uh, San Francisco. Um, I mean, the the left loves her, right? Because I guess she's a woman, so therefore she's you know great, the great Fed chairman because she's a woman. Um, but you know, look, I, the Republicans do the same thing. You know, look, Larry Kudlow, you know, he was uh, economic advisor to Trump, and you know, he did exactly what I said he was going to do. You know, he basically was a mouthpiece for Trump, and he said a lot of things he didn't believe in because that's what the president wanted him to say. Um, so she's there to just, uh, you know, validate anything the president wants to do, you know, whether she believes it or not, no idea. Um, but, um, you know, they just want to spend money, and, and, and if it doesn't matter how much money they have to borrow to pay for it. I mean, that's the president's agenda, and she's there to uh, act as a, you know, a public relations a person to promote the president's agenda and to say positive things about what the president wants to do. doesn't matter what she actually believes, right? She's there for spin. It's like, or like a lawyer. I mean, you could be a lawyer and you know, your job is to represent a client and maybe your client is guilty, but you got to pretend he's innocent. <laughs> it's your job to, to, to get him acquitted. I mean, that's why so many lawyers make good politicians because they're, they're so used to lying, right? They can just argue any position you know, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. And and so that's what these guys do. And so, uh, you know, it's no surprise uh, that, that this is going to happen. But to me, you know, I, the, the real dangerous part, I think, about having this former Fed chair as the Secretary of the Treasury is how the Secretary of the Treasury and the Federal Reserve chairman, how they work so closely together. Right. I don't even exactly. think they should be allowed in the same room. Exactly. They shouldn't even be allowed to talk. There should be a Chinese wall there. Yep. You know? I agree. Uh, because if you're going to pre- pretend that the Fed is independent, how are these guys having regular meetings? I mean, they don't seem very independent to me. They're working hand in glove, and that is the problem. Because what, what Powell should be doing is – you know, raising interest rates. They should they should be selling U.S. Treasuries and forcing the U.S. government to cut spending because the government's broke. We're spending too much money. The Fed is not there to enable uh, deficit spending. It's supposed to be our protection against that. But 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 they're not protecting us. They're 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 aiding and abetting the government, and you know they're they're violating uh, the the very purpose that they're supposed to be there to do right, which is uh, you know, to, to provide an independent uh, monetary policy. The reason you don't want the government uh, running the monetary policy is because they'll do exactly what the Fed is doing right now. That's the, the whole purpose of Fed independence is to prevent the Fed from doing exactly what it's doing. So the Fed is doing what it would do if we didn't even have an independent central bank. So it's all it, it's all a farce, you know. And, of course, they all want to pay homage. Oh, yes, of course, I believe in this in the independence of the central bank. Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything. When, when, when you're not acting independent, when you're just doing the bidding of the government and you're trying to you know, do your policy, I mean, one of the reasons they won't raise interest rates is because they know the federal government can't afford to pay. And they don't, they don't want to force that decision on the Fed. Yeah, or, or of course. Tre- they, don't want, they don't want on the Treasury. They don't want the government to have to cut spending. 
and prioritize spending so it could live within its means. So what's the one thing that makes what you're saying and what you're arguing, what we just talked about in terms of inflation and all, you know, what's the one thing that happens that gets this into the forefront of people's minds? Be, you know, people that aren't studying well, I, economics. Look, it's Look, the next recession is going to be caused by inflation. This is what's happening. And you can already see that in the housing numbers that came out yesterday. Um, why are people not buying homes now? Well, because they can't afford them, because they're so expensive, because the cost of building them has gone up so much. Uh, why are people not buying cars? Why are they stopped? Because the prices have gone up so much. So even though the government is giving people money, the money isn't enough to pay these higher prices. And inflation is really going to start crippling the economy. Uh, businesses are going to start laying people off. I mean, a lot of construction workers now are going to get laid off because Americans can't afford to buy these expensive homes because it's too expensive to build them. But a lot of goods are going to get more expensive, and so Americans are going to be buying fewer goods. Uh, and so the layoffs are going to start. Companies are going to have to uh, you know, lay off workers to try to control costs. Um, you know, People are going to spend less because they things are too more expensive. And, and so the dollar is going to start to plunge. And as inflation, you know, the way you measure it through the CPI, because as people lose their jobs, you know, more and more people are going to get benefits. More money is printed. The weaker the economy is, the more money the Fed prints. But a weak economy doesn't produce goods and services. So you have all these people who believe that inflation is somehow prevented by a weak economy, that if a lot of people lose their jobs, that that means prices will fall. No, it actually will put even more upward pressure on prices because when people aren't working, they're not producing, so there's less stuff to buy. And now when they're not working, the government prints more money to give it to them to replace the paychecks that they lost. So as the economy weakens, you have more and more money to buy stuff, but less and less stuff being produced you actually end up with worse inflation in a weak economy than you would have in a strong economy. So you have so many people think that, oh, that's our get-out-of-jail-free card, that if the economy weakens, uh, you know, then we won't have inflation. No, the weak economy is actually going to accelerate uh, the inflation and make it worse. And so the dollar is going to start to tank, and, and, and then it's, it's all going to snowball. You know, as, and I, I, I think we're going to have price controls and all kinds of crazy things. I and mean, we had them in the 1970s, so why wouldn't we have them again? Of course, they don't work, but that does, that's not going to stop them from doing it. Plus, I also think they want to vilify people. Look, they're already trying to sue, and they're bringing an antitrust action against Amazon, trying to blame Amazon for high prices. Like, come on. I mean, Amazon has been helping to keep prices down, uh, despite all the inflation that the Fed has been creating. But they're going to be looking at pointing fingers at other businesses. When companies really start raising prices, you better believe the government's going to start like coming after them as if they're unpatriotic, they're gouging, they're taking advantage of people. I mean, who knows? Uh, but the economy is going to unravel. And all those people out there you know, that think that they've got a hedge you know, in, in Bitcoin, I mean, this Bitcoin bubble is going to pop too. You know, talk about... Uh, people in denial. You know, you look at what's happening with Bitcoin now, right? You know, as we're talking, it's you know below thirty nine thousand. You know, down from sixty five thousand. And listen to all the BS coming out of the Bitcoin community. I mean, first of all, they're saying that this big decline is healthy, that we're getting rid of the the the, the speculative excesses. Oh yeah, well, why weren't they saying that when it was at sixty sixty five thousand? Right, that right. these speculative excesses are dangerous. Meanwhile. Back then, guys like Michael Saylor 
and you know and others were saying that hey bitcoin is less risky now at 60,000 than it was you know at 10,000 they were saying that the high price de-risked it because now that it's so mainstream people didn't have to worry about the big declines that they had early on well now we get a 50% decline and what are those same people that said Bitcoin wasn't going to crash again. Oh, well, this is how Bitcoin works. You know, it, you just got to expect it to crash by 50% every once in a while. That's just the price you pay for having this great asset. Oh, so the price you pay for having a great asset is that it can collapse at any minute. That's what, that's what makes it great. But then you have to hope every time it crashes, you have to hope it comes back. Well, what if it doesn't come back? I mean, they say, well, <laughs> it's always come back in the past, right? So that doesn't guarantee crap. Just because something has happened in the past doesn't mean it's going to happen in the future. So do you really want to buy an asset knowing that any after the day after you buy it, it can crash by 50%, but then you just have to hope it comes back? I mean, it's nonsense. And now you have them saying, oh, you know, it'd be good if, if, if China bans Bitcoin. Oh, that'll be good for the market. Really? Really? It's going to be good for Bitcoin if China makes it illegal and a billion people can't buy it and they can't mine it there? I mean, I mean no matter what bad news comes out, about Bitcoin, they put a positive spin on it. I mean, nothing could happen that's wrong, right? That shows you how crazy uh, this cult is that no matter what happens, it's good for Bitcoin, right? Not, there's nothing could be bad, right? All news is good news. It's all spin. Uh, and again, that's because people are trapped. They have to get more people to buy. But I, I think the institutional demand is gone from Bitcoin. I mean, I think that you know, the, the institutions that got in are probably trying to figure out how to get out. I think the ones that didn't get in are glad that they dodged a bullet. But I want to see when some of the big guys, like I think, and I don't know this for a fact, but my gut is that the first institution to get out is going to be Paul Tudor Jones. I mean, I mean, my thinking is that he's probably already selling. I mean, if you look at this chart, I don't see how you're long Bitcoin. And you know, he bought it. He said, oh, it's the fastest horse in the race. Well, I think it broke its leg. I mean, I think the horse is headed for the glue factory at this point. I think you look at the chart, I think any objective money manager is going to cut and run. I mean, I think he may still have a gain from when he bought. Uh, but I think the momentum is gone. Uh, meanwhile, gold is breaking out. Uh, gold stocks, silver stocks, I think that's where Paul Tudor Jones is going. So we'll see what happens. I think at some point you're going to find out, we're going to find out that he is out of Bitcoin. You know, he's cashed out and he's not in it anymore. Um, and, and, you know, but there's going to be a lot of bag holders that are going to be, that are going to be caught in this thing. I mean, sailor is going to go down with the ship and I have no doubt that he's going to keep borrowing more money and buying more Bitcoin all the way down. Um, the question is, you know, when, when does uh, micro strategy, you know, uh, you know, go broke? Uh, because I think those uh, convertible note holders are going to end up owning the company. And uh, the shareholders are just going to be SOL um, and, uh, you know, filing lawsuits against uh, against Saylor. Well, I'd be more than happy but, um, to have you and Saylor on to do a debate. I put that online the other day. I'd, I'd love to host you guys. I can yeah, remain yeah. objective. I, what I offered was you can each you can each give, you know, three or four questions uh, to be asked so that, you know, objectively both parties uh, can can get their jabs in question wise. You can each answer uh, each other's and your own three or four questions. I'll moderate it. I'll give you five minutes to respond and then time five minutes for discussion. You can make an opening and a closing, and it can be very clinical. Yeah, so look, let's, I tell you, Chris, you guys I, 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 I'll meet him any place, any time. I don't care, you know. I mean, I'll I'll debate Sailor. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, he. I mean, he's got no upside in debating me. I mean, he did. He did have a debate uh, with um, um, Frank Justra. Yeah, I saw that. And and so, but and, and Frank's a gold guy. But Frank, I mean, I would not have been as kind to him as, as Frank was. Because Frank like opened up the possibility that hey, Bitcoin's okay. I'm not really anti-Bitcoin. I'm just not. All, I'm also pro gold, and I just you know think that your approach. You know, he called him out for stuff like you know telling people to you know take out loans and buy Bitcoin. Right. But you know, I I I, I am a Which more is a terribly reckless you know, anti-Bitcoin. I'm more anti-Bitcoin than than than, than Frank. Obviously, I I, I just I, I don't think people need to buy both. Bitcoin and gold. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think people should buy Bitcoin at all. Um, but to the extent that you want to trade it, you know, understanding what you're trading and you think you can get in and out and you want to speculate in it, you want to do that, you know, go ahead. I mean, it's not something I choose to do. Uh, but, you know, you can't look at Bitcoin as digital gold, as a safe haven. I mean, you can't on the one hand, say, hey, anytime Bitcoin can crash by 50% or 60 70%, that's just how Bitcoin is. You can't say that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, claim it's a safe haven to store of value. It's a highly speculative asset. And I would put asset in quotes. I don't really see it as an asset. I just look at it as like a token. It's a digital token that people collect and that people trade. And, you know, people could decide they don't want to collect it in the future. Right. Um, you know, it has a very short history. It's been around for a decade. I mean, that's not a long time. You know, I mean, there are restaurants that are there for a decade and then they close because people decide they don't want to eat there anymore. You know, so who knows how long the Bitcoin fad is going to be around. Uh, but people need to keep it in perspective that it is very risky. And is it possible that Bitcoin goes back to 65,000? Is it possible it goes to 100,000, right, where all the laser eyes are focused? You know, could it go to a million? All of that is possible, right? A million, I think, is a very slim possibility. I'm not going to say it's impossible to get to a million because obviously there are circumstances where it possibly could happen. But it isn't an outcome that I think is likely. Uh, and But if you are going to gamble on it, you got to put a very small amount of money in it. Now, for me, I don't like betting on long shots. I mean, I don't buy lottery tickets, right? I just think it's a waste of money. Uh, but some people buy lottery tickets and they win, you know, but I, I just don't think I'm going to be that lucky. Uh, but if someone wants to buy a lottery ticket, I wouldn't tell them to put their entire portfolio into the lottery. I wouldn't tell them to mortgage their house to buy the lottery ticket. <laughs> but, you know, if you feel like throwing some play money at a lottery and, hey, take a chance. Yeah, OK. So if, you know, if people want to gamble in Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, knowing they're gambling and knowing what they're doing, but to try to market it as if it's some kind of alternative to gold and it's, 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 it's a replacement for gold, that's pure hype. I mean, that's part of the fraud to con people into buying it. And so that's one of the things I would want to you know, highlight with Saylor is all this nonsense that he talks about Bitcoin. I mean, this is all BS. And there's going to be a lot of people that listen to what he has to say and actually do put a lot of their money into Bitcoin and they're going to get wiped out and he needs to be held accountable for that. You know, you just can't go out and say all this stuff. And, you know, as you're, you know, a credible person and he's a very smart guy, you know, he's an intelligent person. And, um, but to have that kind of a, of a conflict of interest 
and to give that kind of irresponsible, reckless advice. So I would really challenge him and really call him out. And so I just don't know what he, his upside is. I mean, I'm, you know, it's, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to make him look like a fool because the stuff he's saying is foolish. And, and I think it's, it's easy to, uh, to, to highlight just how ridiculous some of the stuff he says is. I mean, the stuff is so ridiculous. Nobody even challenges him. I don't know why. I mean, they think, well, he's a smart guy, so he must know what he's talking about. Well, maybe he's a smart guy, but he's talking pure BS when it comes to Bitcoin or gold. And so I just want to expose that and, and see if I can prevent people uh, from, you know, following this guy, you know, the, the Pied Piper of Pump uh, down this primrose path to financial ruin. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, certainly I'd be happy to host that debate if you guys ever wanted to. But uh We'll see. I have a feeling Sailor would. Well, it would be in his best interest to shy away. You know, Pompiano told me he would come on and talk to me, and then you know he just he went away. I don't know what happened, but whatever. That's how it goes. You know, I'll be here if he wants. Yeah, on. I mean, you know, I, 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 I kind of like Pomp. I think Pomp's a Pomp's a nice guy. I, I you know, I, he cracks me up a lot. He puts up so many of these memes of me on his uh, Twitter. Just really cry. I mean, they're funny, you know, <laughs> but. But, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, all in on, on it, too. I mean, there's a lot of smart people. Look, I ran into, you know, I'm, I'm in the gym today, and I, a couple of kids are there, and they, you know, recognize me. And, um, yeah, they, you know, they, they own Bitcoin and <laughs> asked me, hey, is there any way we can get you to buy some Bitcoin? I said, not really. Yeah, awesome. Well, listen, Peter, thanks for taking an hour <laughs> and a half of your time today, brother. It was great to speak to you, as it always is. And now I, the best part about doing this interview is I get to leave you alone for a couple months. I, I won't text you uh, relentlessly anymore to come on the podcast. But... Yeah, well, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm leaving for Connecticut tomorrow. So I've been in Puerto Rico for a while. And, you know, the kids are out of school. Let's take a summer vacation. Going to spend some time in Connecticut. And then I have uh, – I'm supposed to spend a month in Switzerland. So I'm waiting to see that they open up the country because so far – uh, they haven't uh, indicated that they're going to let Americans in. So I'm hoping I, I, I already, you know, uh, paid room for a month or my you know apartment. <laughs> yeah. Well, hotel, good luck with that. Hotel, hotel. <laughs> We're wishing you the I best. Know, I know. It's not, I can't get I can't get my Swiss francs. I can't get my Swiss francs back. Oh, first you know, world. First world problems. I yeah, can't. but at least at least they're in Swiss francs. They're appreciating, so you know I can <laughs> I can I can get it as a credit for for next year. I can stay I can stay next year, but I really I really want to want to go there this year. So hopefully they open up and we could we could spend a month there. All right. Well, if you see my Swiss francs over there too, pick them up for me, and uh, this, <laughs> you can, we can exchange them the next time we meet on the road at whatever conference organizer yeah. is foolish enough to put us on the same stage again, like they did a couple years ago. So, yeah. All right, Peter. Thanks so much, brother. Right. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. That was the one and only Mr. Peter Schiff of Euro-Pacific Capital, the man, the myth, the legend. I appreciate you guys very much for listening. And my patrons, thank you guys for keeping the podcast afloat. You guys uh, are really the capitalistic engine behind this podcast. So thank you guys so much. I will be back very soon. I got a bunch of good stuff lined up over the next week or two. But for now, I'm out. Peace.